Well, good morning. Welcome to our service. It's so great to see many of you here. Welcome also to those of you joining us online. Thank you to Blair Moser for that beautiful reading in Mandarin. These readings in different languages of the world I have really enjoyed. It's part of our emphasis on the gospel for all nations, for all people. And with the exception of uh, only one of our missionary guests who does translation work, uh, reading one of the language, all the other readers have been folks here within our church. And thank you, Blair, for that reading today. We are going to celebrate communion today, the Lord's Supper. So those of you here uh, should have gotten one of these little cups on the way in if you want to participate in communion. If not, our ushers will bring those around later if you'll simply raise your hand. And there are those tables in the back of the uh, worship auditorium today. Because we're having communion, I want to mention a few upcoming events right now. Uh, the first has to do with our November 18th missions dinner. Uh, that will be a week from this coming Friday. We're going to have several missionary guests here for the weekend. And that Friday night at 6 p.m., we'll have a dinner in our gym. It's an opportunity to hear from them the work they're doing around the world. It would be a great help to us if you would register in advance for that so we can prepare for the right number of people. Exciting opportunity to learn about missions around the world. And then on November the 20th, in the morning, we'll have our service here. I hope you'll be here and we'll have a special focus on missions around the world. I'm particularly excited about that. But that evening, Sunday evening, November 20th, is our prayer and praise service. That's from 5 to 6 p.m. right here in the sanctuary. You don't need to register, but do come if you can. It's a time for us to worship together with our friends from our church plant, our daughter church, Restoration Community Church, also to dedicate the Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes, which will be received all that prior week. Ken and Denise Jones are already here today in the coffee bar area. You can get your shoeboxes, and if you want to help them, they're going to be processing thousands of shoeboxes here that are going to go all over the world. We can always use volunteers, and you can get information as you see it there. Finally, I want to mention something to you that uh, uh, you may want to take advantage of. Pastor David Holcomb is doing a series right now on the biblical feasts, and that class is going on uh, today and also next Sunday um, as well. But these are available online on our YouTube channel, and David does a phenomenal job with these teachings. And so I would encourage you, it's a, it's a great way to learn about the unity of the Old and New Testament and how they fit together. So I recommend those uh, highly to you. Now, before we get into the scripture this morning, I'd like to ask you to join me uh, in a couple minutes of prayer. This Sunday is being recognized worldwide as a day of prayer for the persecuted church, persecuted Christians from Iran to North Korea to Nigeria. And so I'd like to ask you to join me now as we pray for those who are suffering for their faith around the world. Father, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord Jesus. But today there are many who persecute your followers just as they persecuted you. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in China, Nigeria, Iraq, Cuba, nations around the world where Christians are suffering, that you would bless your people with your strength, give them endurance and perseverance in what they're going through for your name's sake. Watch over them. 
Bless them and keep them and cause your face to shine upon them. Father, we also want to pray today for our own nation. We pray as the elections are underway that they would go peaceably this week. We pray that you would guide the outcome, Lord, and give us leaders at every level of government who will reflect your wisdom, your ways, your truth, your goodness, your mercy, Lord. Father, I also want to pray for uh, Rusty McClellan as he leaves tomorrow for, for Uganda, that you'd watch over Rusty and BJ and bless their ministry. Let it flourish in Uganda. And now, Lord, we pray that you would be at work also here today, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your word. Change us in the ways you know we each need to be changed so that when we leave here today, we would know you better and love you more. And we ask this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, thank you again for being here today. We're continuing in the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 16. It's a challenging chapter, and it begins with a parable, the parable that was read to us in Mandarin a few minutes ago. Um, the chapter begins with that parable, and Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he begins with these words, there was a rich man. There was a rich man who had a manager. It was customary in Jesus' time, in biblical times, for a wealthy person to have a steward or a household manager who would watch over uh, the affairs of the home, perhaps the affairs of his business, and watch over the other household servants as well. And this scenario is depicted in quite a number of, of Jesus' parables, stewards who don't own things, but they're to be found trustworthy with what has been committed to their care. So there's a rich man, Jesus says, and he's got a steward. He's got a household manager, but it was reported to the owner, the rich man, that this manager, this steward, was wasting his property, was wasting his goods, apparently being dishonest in some way. And so he calls him to account and says, I want you to give an account of your stewardship for you can no longer be manager. You're going you're gonna to lose your job. This is it for you. And so in Jesus' parable in Luke 16, the manager, the steward says, what am I going to do since my master's taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. He says, I'm ashamed to go around begging and I'm just not physically capable to go out there and, you know, dig foundations or dig wells or something like that. What am I going to do? He says, here's what I'll do. I've decided what to do when I'm removed from my management, my job, so that people will receive me into their houses. In other words, so somebody else will hire me as a household manager. And he began going to the people who owed money or resources to his uh, master. He went to his master's debtors one by one. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? A hundred measures? He says, take your bill and write 50. Goes to another, how much do you owe? 80 says, take your bill and write less. And so he, he takes these steps to reduce the debts owed to his master for this reason. So that when I'm removed from management, they'll receive me into their houses. Now, it's an interesting parable because of what Jesus says next in the parable in verse 8. The household manager is commended 
for his shrewdness in providing for his future. This is what makes this parable difficult to understand. People read this parable and they think, oh, is Jesus commending dishonesty or, or, or wasting of possessions? Is he commending what this dishonest steward did? Let's read what Jesus said in his parable. Now, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now notice this. This manager, this steward, who had been accused of wasting the master's property, the owner's property, he is commended not for his morality. He is commended not for his honesty. In fact, he's called a dishonest manager. He is simply commanded for his shrewdness. He was shrewd to use his master's money to prepare for his own future. And Jesus says, the sons of this world, and when Jesus refers to someone as the son of something, he's saying uh, uh, typically he's someone who is, is, is of that nature. A son of the world is someone who's of the world, not of the kingdom of God. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The sons of this world would refer to unbelievers. The sons of light would refer to believers. So let me recap it again. The manager is commended for his shrewdness, not his morality, not his honesty. He's commended for his shrewdness in providing for his future. The household manager had said, I'll use my master's money to make friends for myself in order to benefit myself in the future. And he's commended for his shrewdness. And now Jesus, speaking to his disciples, applies the parable to our use of wealth in preparation for eternity. And so Jesus, now speaking to his disciples, applies the parable this way. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What does he mean by this? He's simply telling us to use wealth in such a way as to prepare for our future in eternity. When it fails is, a, is simply a phrase saying when money is of no longer any use to us, when we die. Because when we die, we don't take one penny with us. You don't take it with you. That's clearly in the Bible. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can take nothing out. We will not take it with us. When it fails, I think refers to the end of our lives when we die. Money is then no longer of any use to us. It all stays here. Except that which we have given to the Lord in the work of his kingdom, Jesus refers to as having laid up treasure in heaven. He tells us in the Gospel of Matthew, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So Jesus is applying this parable to our use of wealth here in this life in anticipation of eternity. And he calls us to faithfulness with what God entrusts to us. Jesus goes on to say in the very next verse, one who's faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. 
Jesus is teaching us to be faithful with whatever God has given us in this life, whether it's little or much, and he assures us that when we are faithful, God entrusts us with more, not only in this life, but I think in eternity. Faithfulness, Jesus goes on to explain, prepares us to receive what he calls the true riches. And he says to his disciples, if then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, and he's using that phrase to refer to material wealth, money, who will entrust you the true riches? Jesus is saying there are riches that are far greater than material wealth, far, far greater than money. And if you've not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? It's interesting that Jesus uses that phrase, which is another's. He's essentially telling us our wealth, our money, what God enables us to have in this life is not permanently ours. It is a temporary trust from God. We're simply, <clears throat> like the household manager, stewards of what God the owner owns. And in this life, we get to oversee temporarily, as long as we're on this earth, what he has entrusted to us. And when we're faithful, we're entrusted with the true riches, the true things of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, not only here, but in, in eternity. So let me try to recap so far. We've seen this parable. It's, uh, some would say, the most challenging of Jesus' parables to understand and interpret because it sounds a little bit like he's commending this dishonest uh, manager or steward. But what we see is that the household manager is commended for his shrewdness in providing for his future, thinking about his future. And secondly, Jesus applies the parable to our use of wealth in preparation for eternity. Now, there are actually two parables in this chapter. And each one begins with the very same words. There was a rich man. We've seen the first parable. I want to jump ahead to the second just for a moment because it, it sheds further light. Each parable deals with use of wealth and also deals with anticipation of eternity. The second parable is a more well-known parable. It's often referred to as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And again, it's in the same chapter and it begins with the very same words. There was a rich man. We read these words in Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. In Jesus' time, two of the most visible marks of one's wealth were what you wore and what you ate. This man uh, was dressed richly. He feasted sumptuously, not just on feast days, but every single day. And it happened that at his gate, at the rich man's gate, there was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. The, the implication is he desired that, but he didn't get that. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the rich man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Abraham's side should be understood as a reference to heaven, eternity. He's with God in eternity. Doesn't even tell us he was buried, but the angels took him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was, was buried, 
with the burial of his body did his soul no good because he was in Hades. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Wow. I'd say that's a pretty sobering parable that Jesus told. Don't, remember this is a parable now, don't take this to mean that people in heaven can always see into hell or vice versa. Jesus, I think, is telling this story, this parable, to make a point, and one of his points, in fact, is that a person's place in eternity is fixed. It is permanent. Now, why are these two parables together in Luke chapter 16? Well, I think there's a reason they're both together, and they both begin with the words, there was a rich man, and that's simply because, number one, they, they both deal with wealth, use of wealth, and unfaithful use of wealth in both cases. The shrewd manager and the, the rich man uh, who didn't take care of Lazarus. Secondly, both of them deal with eternity. The shrewd manager's example was at least one of, of anticipating the future in his use of, of wealth. The rich man uh, obviously deals with eternity as well. And they call us finally to faithful stewardship. So let's reflect back on Jesus' teaching in this first parable now. The household manager is commended for his shrewdness in preparing for his future Jesus applies the parable to our use of wealth in preparation for eternity. He gives us a very, very strong warning not to be like the rich man and the rich man and Lazarus and to ignore uh, the need to use our wealth for the benefit of those around us in need. But what is the Lord really getting at in this chapter? What's the, the main idea, the main thrust, the big idea? What is Jesus really driving toward in Luke chapter 16 with these two parables. I think it's simply this. Followers of Jesus must be devoted to God and not to money. Followers of Jesus must be devoted to God and not to money. And Jesus is crystal clear. He says, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. This is not the only place Jesus said this. In his Sermon on the Mount, to a different audience, a different time, a different setting, Jesus taught these words, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's the key. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And then in verse 24, he says the same thing he says in Luke. 
No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other. He'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. The key is the heart. This is what God is after. He is after the devotion of our hearts. When the heart is devoted to the Lord, when you're fully surrendered to Jesus Christ, money can achieve very, very good things, very good things for the kingdom of God. But God wants the heart first and most. That's why Jesus said, you can't serve God in money. You can't serve two masters. Jesus does not share the throne of our hearts with an idol like the idol of our, our love of money. I think we can conclude this. Money's a good servant, but it's a very poor master. And I think each of us throughout life, I know I need to often examine myself in regard to these things. We need to examine ourselves regarding which of these two places money has in our lives. Is it a servant that under the lordship of Jesus Christ can be used to do good things, to help the needy, to help the poor, to build the kingdom of God, to reach the unreached, to reach the lost, to build up believers for the glory of God? Money is a, is a good servant, but it's a very poor master. And it's a, a very strong warning Christ gives in this chapter. And he gives it for a couple of reasons. Number one, he wants to teach his disciples. He's speaking to his disciples, but his disciples were not the only ones hearing these sobering parables. The Pharisees were there as well, and we... We know they were offended because the very next verse in Luke reads this way. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. I find these teachings of Jesus in this chapter, frankly, very challenging. Um, perhaps we all do. Especially when we take the first parable together with the one of the rich man and Lazarus. And I think one question <clears throat> that arises is this, <clears throat> is this chapter, particularly these two parables, is this chapter, chapter 16, teaching that what we do with our money determines our eternal destination? Because it sounds a lot like it is. If this were all the scripture we had, I'd say it is. But that's not all the scripture we have. I'm very grateful. I would say emphatically, no. Scripture is not teaching that what we do with our money determines our salvation. If what we did with our money determined our eternal destiny, the Son of God would not have left heaven and given his life on the cross to bear our judgment, to atone for our sin, to take our place as the great substitute, the Lamb of God. Jesus said no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. The apostle Paul said, you know, I could, I could give away everything I have, but if I don't have love, it, it doesn't gain me anything. It would be possible to give away all your money for the poor. and still not enter the kingdom of God if you have not been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ who shed his blood on the cross to atone for our sins, and that is the only way one can enter the kingdom of God through faith in him. Our salvation was secured by Jesus Christ alone. 
in his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. But when we receive him as Savior and Lord, he takes the throne of our hearts. And if you're like me, it's often in life a bit of a battle, and I often need reminders that he gets the whole throne, and he does not share his throne with any idols. And covetousness, greed, the love of money can be a particularly deceptive and controlling idol in the human heart. And that is why Jesus is speaking so strongly, both to his disciples, believers, the sons of light, and to Pharisees, unbelievers, sons of this world. And so it calls us, I think, to check our hearts. Money, when we're devoted to Christ, when he is Lord, when we say, not my will, thy will be done, money can be a good servant rather than a cruel taskmaster who steals our devotion from God. And I do believe that to the degree our hearts are changed by the Holy Spirit, our handling of money will be affected by that. And so before we take communion this morning, I'd like to raise three questions by way of personal application. The first one is this. Would I be ready for the day of judgment if it came today? Please don't hear me saying that entry into heaven is based on some type of financial formula. Entry into heaven comes only through faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross. The question I'm asking here, the thing I'm getting at here is, is he your Lord? Is he ruling and reigning on the throne of your heart? Is he in the driver's seat of your life? Is Jesus Christ truly your Lord? Secondly, because he is talking about stewardship here, and stewardship is an important indication of the devotion of our hearts. How would God rate my stewardship of the resources he's entrusted to me? He's primarily talking about money, wealth in this chapter, but resources are other things as well. The use of our time, the use of our spiritual gifts to serve others in the body of Christ. And then thirdly, what changes would the Lord have me make to my handling of money? Would you join me as we pray about these things? Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And Lord, particularly with this passage, I think we need to say we need much of your grace and much of your help to honor you as we should. Father, I pray you'd speak to each one of us in the ways that we need especially to hear from you. Give us the correction, the direction we need. Give us the renewal of devotion we need. I pray above all else that each person here would come to the faith, come to the place of making Jesus Lord of all. And Lord, we acknowledge we need the help of the Holy Spirit to do that. We can't do this by the mere power of our own human reasoning or will. We need your help. Please, Holy Spirit, enable us to walk 
under submission to the beautiful Lordship of Jesus Christ who is the way and the truth and the life. Help us and guide us, we pray, Lord, in your great name. Amen. This morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And if you did not get one of these prepackaged little communion cups and you would like one, um, if you, our ushers have some trays. If you just raise your hand, they'll actually bring one to you here. Uh, those of you joining us at home, uh, you may have a near substitute for bread or juice, but we're going to uh, participate in the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. First, I'd like to read these words from the Apostle Paul found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then Paul gives a warning. He writes, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The taking of communion, the Lord's Supper, is a time for self-examination, being certain that we understand what we're doing, first of all, that the bread, the little wafer, represents the body of Christ, the juice represents his blood, and that we, by faith, have received personally, individually, the benefits of his sacrifice by embracing by faith what Jesus has done, by embracing him as our Savior, and our Lord. But furthermore, I think communion provides us a time for self-examination in even more broad areas of life. If there's someone we haven't forgiven that we need to forgive. If there's some sin we've been clinging to that we need to repent of and confess as we come to God, communion is a wonderful time to search our hearts and be sure that we are walking in right fellowship with God as we should be. So would you join me <clears throat> as we pray now and prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper? Father, we pray the prayer King David prayed in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you do that for each one of us now, Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus. <clears throat> 